Hi, this is Tavi Nyong'o, and I am delighted to be introducing this episode of Fantastic Blackness with myself and my co-host, Shante Paradigm Smalls, interviewing Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. This is such a rich and wide-ranging conversation that we decided to split the podcast into two parts, so we will have our first hour this episode, and then please join us in a couple weeks for the conclusion of our conversation with Jacob Jenkins. So please listen and subscribe on your chosen platform and join in on the conversation on social media. You can find us on Instagram at Fantastic Blackness or go to our link tree also at Fantastic Blackness, where you can find our Substack link and read our post podcast notes. Today, we welcome special guest, Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. Uh, Brandon uh, has won numerous awards, including the OB, uh, a USA Fellowship, uh, and a MacArthur Genius Award uh, for his uh, work in the theater and beyond. His plays include Appropriate, uh, Neighbors, and Octoroon, War, and Everybody. Uh, he has taught at uh, Hunter College, at Princeton, and at the University of Texas, Austin, and is joining the faculty at Yale University as professor in the practice of theater and performance studies. We're thrilled to have Brandon join us today on the podcast. We're so excited to host you, Brandon. Thank you. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm here and I'm seeing both of you who, I guess my history with you guys began as a baby, basically. Well, that's <laughs> that's perfect because that's going to be sort of my first question. Um, oh, wow. So, you know, we obviously all know each other from the performance studies department at Tisch at NYU, where yes. Tavia was a faculty member. I was doing my PhD and you did your MA. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, how performance studies fits into your origin story as a playwright and a writer for television. Mm. It's so funny because I feel um, for me, like performance studies has like been the weather, you know, it's like sort of just been the, the, the thing that hangs over my life since as long as I've even like felt myself thinking original thoughts, you know, I, I, I feel like I joke a lot with a lot of the fellow grads I'm still in touch with about how we were like trendsetters because I, I remember at the time kind of being laughed at on my like very traditional, um, theater program for like pursuing this esoteric unreal you know discipline and I was just convinced you know and I've been actually I'd sort of been pushed there I I majored in anthropology as an as an undergraduate and I remember um the teachers like not knowing what to do with me like all things I wanted to do they were like you don't really (laughs) belong here but there's this thing called performance studies (laughs) and similarly um at the time the very great professor Daphne Brooks, uh, African-American music and theater scholar was teaching at, at my undergraduate school. And um, she was like, I like clung to her. I don't know, she, I just, we, I found her and like never let her go. And so it's one of those things where you look back and you're like, it almost felt predestined that I would wind up um, studying this in some way. And that time was incredibly formative for me. I mean, it came to me at a very impressionable time in my like intellectual and artistic life. I think I like literally left graduation and moved to New York and began the program within like a week, you know? And so I was kind of burnt out still, but I finally felt like, Oh my God, I'm at a place that is strange enough and weird enough and like new feeling enough in terms or not, but it embraced sort of a different kind of critical thought, which I think now is just like weirdly mainstreamed. But, um, but I felt really at home there and I felt like my curiosity had a place, which it didn't have prior to that. And, you know, in that, what, like 18 months, however long that MA lasted, I think everything I've read in that is like, I've been working through ever since, <laughs> you know, I was exposed to Cynthia Hartman's work. And I feel like a lot of that was, um, has crept into a lot of what I've thought about, like in a very kind of, you know, like a grotto underneath me is, is Cynthia Hartman and Elena Patterson and that is like social death and like most critical race theory as we actually understand it, not the way that suddenly now people think they understand what that um, means. <laughs> I know, uh, it's so funny. Not, not, uh, not, not critical race theory as uh, the devil worship that. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> right I, I actually, I'm actually very tickled by it because I'm like, man, it's just, I don't know. It's just, who to thunk it? You know, I remember one time reading an open up 
the New Yorker and there's like a profile, there's like an article on affect theory. Yeah. And I was like, what the hell is happening? Uh, <laughs> that, was like the, that was like the, we were at the edge of the affective turn, you know, in the academy at that time. And anyway, but, um, and of course I took these very formative classes with like Karen Shimakawa taught this amazing class on performance in the law, which I still think about and draw from all the time. Tavia took many classes with Mr. Professor Dr. Nyango here. And I performing remember, Race and Nation, where I think performing you read Race and Nation. The Octoroon. <laughs> oh no, no, that was oh. your interracialism class. Oh, interracialism. Did, oh yeah, yes, the interracialism class. Yes. Yes. And, and I read that, I remember reading that Werner song. I was dating somebody in Boston at the time. And I was always on them Fung Wah buses. I remember reading the Werner Solers book <laughs> back and forth as I drove between here in Boston. And that that book really, and Joe Roach, you know, that those books really were honestly the things that drew drew obviously draw me drew me to the octoroon and mm -hmm. that of course transformed my my life in a lot of ways too so and then i still you know it's funny i think i teach from a i've been teaching now for about like 10 years and i've always been very um uh impatient with like the formal kind of like workshop format that we normally teach creative writing through and i do wind up teaching this sort of these sort of hybrid courses, which I totally am pulling from like performance composition classes at PS and the class I took with Carmelita Tropicana, which is like on student mentality. And so my students are like reading and watching as much as they're making. And the making is often like a kind of response and praxis to, to the work, the kind of investigations we're doing. So I don't know, maybe it's sort of mainstreamed in me, but it's there. It's just always there. And I feel, I feel kind of strange talking about it because you know, I like this idea of the grotto and I want to kind of like dwell in there for like a minute just because it's such a powerful image um mm. and uh thinking about what you just said about you know the you know the role that you know not necessarily like theater history but like history history you know like this is such an important i mean theater history too of course right? mm -hmm. <laughs> history of, of of drama but you're really wrestling in your um in your work with um uh with uh, with racial history, with trauma, the unspeakable, you also are known as someone who has, um, you know, for whom adaptation um, is, um, is 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 key to some aspects of your work for the stage, and um, and then SF speculative fiction also increasingly, especially with your work on uh, in, um, television. in television and film. Yeah. So, like, not to sort of ask you, like, what are the ties that bind, but, like, what are the ties that bind? Like, how do you go from, like, oh, being schizophrenic in some way yes. to be thinking one day I'm doing, like, scenes of subjection, thinking about, like, you know, the skeleton in the closet, you know, the racial grotto underneath, you know, mm. the kind of bourgeois melodrama or reimagining the Bacchae. The next day mm. I'm kind of adapting you know, 19th century melodrama, and then not now I'm doing wrestling with, you know, Terry Butler. Yeah, it's funny. It's so funny you bring up PS too, because I think that that theoretical, those, those, that theoretical packaging is the method through which I move through most of these things with, with any ease. I mean, I feel like for me, so, you know, what drew me to, to my, what I thought I was going to be was like a historical anthropologist who reconstructed like, historical performances and talked about them you know i was always interested in like isn't that stupid i thought i like you know i remember oh no, it's amazing was, no. we're, we're glad you didn't do it but we're, it's yeah. amazing yeah. <laughs> i mean i don't know if you read the, i don't think you read applications for the ps program but my little essay was um was on like i was obsessed with um that movie oh brother where art thou and kind of the coen brothers at the time and it, and it's very specific detail of how I think that soundtrack won like a Grammy or something that year. And it was composed of all these like archival Alan Lomax recordings. And they wound up having to find the sole living chain gang member who sang on that song, Poor Lazarus, to give him his Grammy. And I don't know why I was obsessed with this idea though, of how, and it became this site for me of thinking through how like black labor and black performance are always kind of present and how they kind of get, Yes. You know, they get they get reauthored. You know, they get re-erased and tracking sort of the idea of the black prisoner's voice through popular music, and that was sort of you know. And I was like, oh, this is kind of fun. You know, I, I'm always I, I grew my parents were both black memorabilia enthusiasts, so I grew up around like 
you know, some, there's some, there's some, there's something in me that's interested in like recovery or, or like pulling things back from oblivion. That was like always in my life Mm. or something. And I think for me, when it comes to, you know, the kind of, the thing that unifies all the things you mentioned is just this idea of genre and how a genre is just always emerging due to like how whatever social forces and i'm always curious it's like well why how and why does something get born it's like arbitrary set of codes around watching and viewing you know they're obviously born on desire and pleasure but there's often something else happening um, especially in the space of like sf which is you know trying to imagine a different way of being you know a different reality or something from what you're what you're living in and so yeah, I do skills it's schizophrenic, but actually they all start at the same place. And we were just like, why is this the way it is? You know, and then when I start there, then I sort of find myself being like, well, what if it was this way? And um, and that somehow winds up turning into work that people respond have responded to historically, you know. And I think for me it is, it's always been about like going back and back and back. Like I think for so long I was just interested in like American drama. And then once I feel like I exhausted that. Um, I was like, well, wait, what about drama? And now I like really love the Greeks. And so I don't know. I just, I keep, I guess I keep going back and back and back. It's really bad. <laughs> back and, and back and back like, and forward and forward and forward and all it's, over, all and over time. Back and back and back in one like, in serious <laughs> drama. Then suddenly you're like, well, what's this other thing called? Like, what's this strain of like, of, you know, speculative fiction and fictionalizing uh-huh. that runs through the American candidates. Now I'm in that space. I mean, who knows, y'all? Who knows? It feels crazy. It does feel crazy, but I've been lucky to have the freedom to jump around because I think, yeah, you know, I know friends who just who get trapped. I mean, my problem with Hollywood is I like I just don't have that thing that wants to make all this like millions and millions of dollars. Like I get bored very easily, so I'm like, okay, I did it. I want to do something, but I can't quite. You know, I can't, the idea of committing to something for five years of my life is just very difficult. I don't know why right now. Yeah. Um... So, I mean, I, I like that you're talking about this, uh, you know, just being a writer, right? And being, and being like, being a historian, being, you know, an artist. This is something I say to my students all the time, both of my undergraduates and my graduate students, about artists really being theorists, you know, that, that some of the, you know, the greatest artists are ones who are also engaged in critical theory and they're engaged in history and also the world about them. They're not just, it's not just you know, like, you know, being drunk and like, you know, painting, right. but there's right. actually, a, there's actually, I mean, there's could be that too, but there's actually a lot of, um, there's actually a lot of pulling together mm-hmm. of, uh, of, of different strands. And I, um, so anyway, I'm a, I'm a big fan of shows like 30 rock. I think about the lives of TV writers and, the, and, mm. and so I'm wondering like for you, you know, as someone who, you know, is trained or start off as a playwright, sort of what is the, how does the kind of, televisual writing room differ for you than sort of like the playwrights collaboration with a director and a dramaturg and producers Mm. in the theater? Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny. I I should say I'm not, I'm definitely not a typical television writer in the sense that I am able to teach and do, you know, write plays in some funny ways. Like I've been very fortunate to be enabled because of that, that kind of diversity of my interest and skill set. Um, you know, I, I would say that in the time that I've been doing television, which is about, honestly, like about 10 years, it's changed so much. Like, not even just like TV itself has changed, but just the experience of making and the and the kind of ways that TV comes together are, is just so different. Um, but I will say that what's always drawn, drawn me to the theater is, sorry, to theater, I mean, okay, but also to television <laughs> is... <laughs> is um, there's a kind of like hive mind thing that happens in a, in, a, in a writer's room. And when it's great, it's like really great. It's it's sort of that thing where you feel like you're, you know, all writing is basically very isolated. And then, and then you know, my, my one of my mentors, Marshall Norman would say that the loneliest person in a rehearsal room is a playwright because directors have an assistant and designers have each other and actors have each other, but you're mm-hmm. like really by yourself and everyone's trying to solve a problem you made. And it's just, um, and it's really <laughs> thrilling. And it's fun. I like love to do it, but TV was the first time when I was like, Oh crap, I'm making something with other writers and I get to sort of be a tourist in their imaginations. And we can kind of cross pollinate in terms of like, 
I don't know, outlook and point of view. And you really feel like you're making something that you could only have made with a group of people. And that's kind of a high, you know? And I mean, that said, it can also be, I mean, I've had traumatic experiences in television mm, as well. I can imagine. Gamut. Yeah, it really, you're never kind of stepping in the same river twice in TV. You're always stepping in, you know, as a showrunner who basically sets the tone for what the values are of this creative experience, the kind of method we'll kind of use to move through it, you know? And it's been, um, I don't know, I've kind of like loved that. I've just loved submitting just a little bit of my own creative will to someone else's and just seeing how that pushes or challenges me or changes me in some way. And there's something too about the reach of television. I mean, I, I plays that have, that have done very well internationally have seen, have been seen by a lot of people, but not the same production, you know, and there's something about, right. you know, when Watchmen premiered, you know, my phone was blowing up for like a year because people were watching the same episodes and realizing the same involvement. And it was, it was a much, you could have a more precise conversation about what, what was happening. And that was, that was interesting to, to go through. And, and it's just the scale. I mean, just the things you can do in that form are just crazy. It's like making a play on crack, like literally on crack. So I don't know. Does that kind of answer the question? Yeah, I mean, it, it does. I, you know, I was, I was thinking a lot about what you were saying about the isolation. You know, as someone who trained as a theater person, I thought I was going to be a playwright and a director. And then I was like, no. <laughs> no, was like, thank you. No, no thank you. And <laughs> yes, then, you know, then I went, to, I really went to music, you know, went mm-hmm. to music. And then that led me to, you know, do graduate work. But um, just the, the collaborative process, I think um, it's something that, is interestingly, I mean, as we both know, is really has, and I think in the last decade has really gotten more traction in the humanities in the academy, you know, sort of like things around tenure and things around, you know, the, the social sciences and the sciences, yeah, they have like first, second, third, fourth writers. But um, this, I remember a couple of years ago, I was at an event at Princeton that, um, Ruha Ben and a couple of people, maybe Moya Bailey had put on and they had, uh, so it was like, you know, a typical kind of all these black SF, Andrea Hairston and just a whole bunch of people were there. And one of the things they said that I thought was really interesting was that they had before the two day conference, they had been together for five days writing and collaborating and thinking about how to talk about their panels, but also their work. And mm-hmm. so there was all this kind of juicy energy because of course these many of these people write alone or sometimes they write in collaboration with one or two people. And they were talking about the excitement of writing together as horror writers, as speculative mm-hmm. writers, as science fiction and fantasy writers. And you know, in an academic setting, coming together before the, you know, the conference the show. to actually yeah. Yeah, to, to show, to actually create it. And, and I was like, right, why don't we do this? You know, uh, mm. you know, time restraints and money. But just that idea of, you know, Tavi and I are, are cooking up a project and we're kind of talking about how to how to how to work on it. So it's it's, you know, it's collaborative. So just yeah, it was really exciting to hear you talk about. Talk about yeah, well. I mean, it's, you know, one of the one of the many things I became obsessed with during COVID. I, I, I like listened to a lot of audiobooks about like Shakespeare and his contemporaries and you know, there are these models for collaborative writing that were actually pretty much, you can, you find them all throughout time periods, but they were all writing each other's plays and like pitching in, you know, lines yeah. and plot turns. And you realize that those works are not as like these singular works of genius necessarily, but they're the spirit, they're the kind of output of this kind of collaborative spirit that for whatever reason we're invested in putting forth a body of work together. That was interesting. And I do, you know, and, and it's, you know, it's funny, you were, when I think back to my, performance studies days, I think one of the big revelations for me in terms of my watching and viewing art making was sort of this golden age. I think we were moving through the time of like ensemble theater. Like, I feel like what now I was joking with my friends that like, I feel like every kid now, when they graduate from the theater program, they become a drag queen. Whereas when I was like, like you know, when I was coming out, out it was like every, you know what I mean? Everyone, when, when I was coming out of college, everyone like was starting a theater company, you know? And like, they were yes. all making these like group things in a basement, you know? And, and that was just the cheap, easy way to make. And I think that that, you know, I think about places like the Classical Hole, which was, you know, Classical Draft and Radio Hole and these sort of places that, um, now no one knows where they are, but but PS122 in the kitchen, which were these play, these spaces where everyone was making this sort of work, not just in the context of each other, but like in the context of their field. And they were, you know, dancers were seeing theater work, seeing musicians. And it was, 
just a, it, that, I do think it's about collective energy that does actually push things forward, even though we may not market or kind of contextualize it as such when it's happening. But yeah, I, I still, and I think I hold that up as an ideal. I think that I find collaborative making or, you know, this sort of cross-disciplinary engagement, what the, behind all the things I value or, or obsess over, you know, historically, but. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Let's uh, take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk about uh, continuing to collaborate and imagine theater one year plus into this panaderia. Oh, God, don't make me. No. Okay. You know, we were going to do it. back. Uh, we're here with uh, Brandon Jacob Jenkins. And um, Brandon, last year, uh, you said, uh, uh, either to be or like in my hearing, <laughs> that this is not theater's first pandemic, but it is television films, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, what I kind of took it to mean is that if we take the long view, if we think about this sort of like deep history of drama, uh, which you were talking about earlier, and, you know, I myself also have been responding to in a really weird way this past year, um, in part um, having an opportunity weirdly to go to Greece and like search out the roots of like you know classical theater. It's like, oh my God, this is crazy. You know, um, this really existed, Dionysus, right? Um, but, um, you know, I wanted to ask you kind of like more than a year in, you know, um, theater and film, sorry, film and television are kind of up and running more or less in different configurations. Uh, live theater is still sort of under a cloud as of, um, as of August uh, uh, 2021. So what are you thinking about that? Like what does, what does the theater's capacity to respond to this kind of adversity um, and dispersion uh, that we're dealing with um, have to, you know, have to teach. Yeah. I mean, it's so, I mean, I feel like I want to say unsavory things because every time I get asked this, I say the like unoptimistic thing and everyone gets like, I was on some Zoom and I was bitching about Zoom theater and all the chats were like, I have enjoyed pieces of Zoom theater. I'll tell you. <laughs> and I'm like, it wasn't Zoom theater. It wasn't we're we're theater. a pessimism free space. Oh my we're God. a safe space for pessimism here <laughs> <laughs> and or critical I mean, negativity. You know, there's so much to say because, you know, so I said that because it's true where I'm like, we're, you know, the minute things shut down, everyone was just like, oh my God, the theater's over. It was already in trouble. And now this is the death knell. And I was just like, you guys, like theater has been operating and on continuously for literally millennia. And you know, everyone's rushing to Netflix and television. I'm like, this is it's actually up to them to figure out if they can make it through. Because, and it's been sort of, that's sort of been the truth. I mean, what's, you know, there's a couple things worth pointing out. One is that you know, theater is a very immediate form, right? So you're not going to get theater unless the people are there that day to do that theater for you. Whereas television and film is working six, at least six months in, 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 in advance. So, you know, theater and film felt so vibrant and immediate because we were, they were burning off their, their inventory. And then as you'll notice, these last few months have been kind of rough because nothing was really shooting. You know, and now things are coming back, but even they're like managing, I mean, these are multi-million dollar operations, television and film. So when things shut down, people lose money in a really, the stakes are high in terms of like COVID, you know, and in the, and it's limited the things people can dream up and make, right? Like notice all the shows that are taking place in like tropical destinations that are easy to quarantine in and tell a story and where everybody's vaccinated or like, you know, some show or like they, they reboot in treatment which is like the easiest show to do because it's just two people talking at a time, you know? Is that necessarily, is that work good? That's not my job to tell you, but like they're actually compromising their, you know, we look to TV to be this place of fantasy and just bigness and sensation and they're limited in their ability to do that because they cannot move all those bodies in the way that they, they used to. And theater, you know, 
I mean, I have some real thoughts about what we left behind, which is not amazing. I think theater was operating at like a crazy manic pace. I think we weren't talking about like the influence of tourist dollars on making in the city, you know, and how dissociated we were from our actual local audiences and theater itself as a very localized form. And I was like thrilled we all could get a break. To just like have a me have some meetings, read some old stuff, catch up on all the stuff you pretended that you watched that you didn't watch, and then like let's have some new ideas. But instead, I felt like there was this like collective meltdown, and it made me really think about workaholism and just sort of like how when you yes. work in an industry where it's so difficult to make a living and success is about working, working, working. When that working stops, I think people lose their sense of identity, they lose their point of view, and. It just became insane. It just became needlessly insane, you know? Um, so I don't know. This isn't everybody's dream. But that being said, like, you know, the, fir- the first thing people, you know, theater is rooted in something very simple, which is people coming together and acting on a story. Like, people are doing that, that are still nurturing that flame in their homes, like, with their friends in their backyards. You know, it may not be at the scale of, like, Wicked on Broadway, but that's just a scale. Scale's the thing you work up to. You know, so I feel like, and, and it's funny, I, mean, I when things started shutting down, I, all my poor students at University of Texas were like in a spiral, you know, because they were like, we're about to graduate and there's nothing waiting for us. And it took me like, I feel like our job for a full year was like waking, calming them down and being like, actually, you're going to like set the terms, you know, everyone's still you know, we had some bad actors in the, and not in the performing sense, but like in the like bad actors is not great leaders who are about to get out of here because they're burned out. They don't have the energy to rebuild something. You know, they've lost momentum. Networks are shifting. I think it's about to be a really interesting rebirth, but it's not going to be immediate. I don't think. I've been telling people to check in in three seasons. I mean, the things happening now, like mm-hmm. Passover on Broadway, these things are great. And, yeah. you know, I feel like... <clears throat> There's meaning and there's meaning in the fact that there's like seven black players on plays on Broadway. But then if I think, but then I look at them and I look at the budgets, I'm like, okay, well, some of these white producers took a two character show that with no set and they're trying to profit from like the press that comes out of it. You know, I'm like, and that's not to knock those artists, the work they're doing, but I'm like, something ain't right. Something is not. And are we expecting like the historically, these audiences to be the ones who put their lives on the line to like go back to the theater in the midst of Delta? Like, what kind of like tomfoolery is that? So I just think there's, I wish that we were kind of, <clears throat> I feel like there's a lot of mourning and grieving and not a lot of processing what that, what you're mourning and grieving, you know? And I think there's a lot of like denial, just like crazy denial still, you know, I'm, I'm still that, you know, the science, the first thing the scientist said was like, y'all not going back to the theater for two years, you know? And people just didn't want to hear that. But I'm like, we should just like think, try to find the blessing in this. You know, like thinking, speaking of like those Shakespeare and contemporaries, you know, they were constantly shutting their theaters down because of plagues and they would just all write poems. I'm like, why don't we all write some poems? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's going to. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Yeah. This is, yeah, I mean, so I feel like I'm grandstanding, but this is no, like no, how this I, I think about. I think this is interesting. You bring all together all this stuff. It's like, it's like, particularly in the US, what happens when like, you know, because it's like, this is industry. It's not just art, right? It, yeah, it's, that's a, right? it's an industry. And so what happens when the industry has to, can't just, you know, follow its conveyor belt formula. And it has right. to think about, theater has to be creative about how it presents itself. And I think about, you know, things that say like Brooklyn Museum was doing, so that they were doing, you know, different sites were becoming theatrical sites, right? So it's mm-hmm. like museums were becoming theatrical sites or the shed has been, you know, doing their, they're still continuing to outdoor performances. It's so funny you mentioned Passover. My dad's like, okay, you want to go see Passover? You want to go see, um, uh, what's his name's libretto, uh, uh, Terrence Blanchard. And I was like, wait a minute, inside? Like <laughs> with hundreds and hundreds of people? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. You know, like, I, know yeah. get, yeah. I know you want to get back to all the like black art, highfalutin art stuff, but you know, Sorry, Dad, if you listen to this, but but yeah. like you know, you know, I don't know, you know, I I just have been to two movies with my mask on. That's as much as I can handle, right. you know. So, so I I'm thinking about the way that theater. Um, I was thinking about actually New York Theater Workshop was doing this really interesting thing where they're like, we're going to try this experimental stuff, and we're going to you know, it's going to some of it's going to be hybrid, and some of it's going to be local. It's, and I think that kind of uh, I know that doesn't necessarily always please funders 
or, you know, the audiences that uh, will now say they're not coming because they, they don't want to wear masks, you know, from wherever they're coming from. But I think that you're right, that if theater can't actually focus on its local environment, as well yeah. as, okay, fine, tourist dollars, then it's losing it's losing something and it's not going to be able to weather you know storms um, yeah and I've talked to friends who are both uh, friends who are theater um, folks and friends who are television and movie people the theater people their thing is oh we don't have any money you know but we're, they're like but we're doing stuff we're you know playing the accordion <laughs> on the street and, and the the tv and film people are really interesting they're like a one friend he just is now down in austin for six months working on some big project and he's like you know it's like you were saying so much money it's so much um you know, there's a lot of safety that they can do, but also there's like a lot of disconnect to uh, their artistic. And so I was just thinking about those, you know, one hand you have all this money and it's like, is what you're creating kind of worth it? And on the other hand, you have this, this amazing sort of well of creativity, but not another space to, you know, produce it. You know, there right lies the the conflict. Yeah. A lot of artists. Yeah. Well, I certainly don't want to turn your podcast into like a nonprofit dissection club, but I think that there is to, you know, this idea of art needs to be worth it is part of the issue, right? And that like art is, is an excess. It is like a, there should not really be a one-to-one value system. You know, people are trying to make art utilitarian and that's what gives it the value. But the truth is like, you know, well, you know, you think about those places that idolize like PS122, The Kitchen, all these places, you know, those shows ran for a weekend. You know, and and failure was a part of it. And that culture is what could create innovation very quickly and kind of spark connection very quickly. But I think now we kind of are naturalizing this model that we're supposed to be running shows for six weeks and they're supposed to transfer to Broadway. And it's just like, no, guys, no, 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 no. And I actually, I was one of the bigger critics about all these things that the various theaters were doing early in the pandemic to like commission random artists for like below wages to provide content that wasn't theater. And I was like, well, first of all, nobody here's a video artist. You know, video art exists. They are also still working. You know, everyone's doing these Zoom plays. I'm like, you're competing with like the Tiger King documentary. Like, are we really, like, you know what I mean? But it's, to me, it was a symptom of how much we like siphoned ourselves off from like cross-disciplinarity. And so, you know, and we just looked dumb yes. making like YouTube videos. And, and of course it created this other issue of where actors, you know, actors, writers, their, their, their work was devalued. And so people were being like, I was the victim of this. I was asked to do a benefit reading of a play of mine. And then suddenly they want to run it for two weeks. They want to charge this amount of money. And I was only paid off for $200. So it's an honorarium. And then next thing I know, they want to take the recording and they want to sell it to a streaming platform. And I was like, Ooh, this is slippery. This is slippery. Yes. So, yes. you know, there it was a strange moment of like, I don't know. I mean, I appreciate this. I want to make sure that the like innovative platform creating thinking is happening from the workers slash artists. I think when the institutions are in charge of them, there are suddenly questions of like, well, who, you know, it's so easy to pretend, you know, now more than ever. It's so easy to pretend that everyone in a nonprofit or in world of theater is doing like a social good, but that's not normal. That's actually not been the case for a minute. <laughs> you know, with, well, you know, these yeah. commercial producers are in bed with all of these big major nonprofits and that's what it's about, you know, that, I mean, this is before COVID. So I don't know, you know, I just, this is what I'm saying. Like I wish that COVID had showed us that reset us a little bit stronger, but. Well, you know, come on, you know, that's like, that's, that's, you know, um, uh, so in 2020, June, we see you white American theater, right? Concrete mm-hmm. change. So here we are a year plus. Anything in your point of view has happened, you know, practically, uh, you know, or so on one hand, has anything happened practically, right? I remember reading all the letters and seeing all the Instagram posts and the signatories. So on one hand, has anything happened practically? On another hand, what are the long-term, you know, because the U.S. loves a, a, a flashy moment, a two-week campaign, but what about long-term, you know, structural changes? So yeah, can you speak to that. Y'all trying to get me in trouble. <laughs> Why y'all trying to get me in trouble? You, you don't have to answer. You don't have to answer. It's okay. <laughs> I, was, I was not a signatory on that, on that list. I was asked to um, 
sign my name in the middle of, I lived like two blocks of Barclay Center. And it was like, it was literally like day two or three of um, the uprising. And, you know, there's helicopters around my house. I'm police are everywhere. People march flooding past my front door every day marching. And I get this phone call asking me to like sign this letter about people kind of upset they're not, you know, they're invited to galas. And I just was like, I don't know if this is, this is what I mean by the theater where I feel like we, we don't quite sometimes pay attention to like what's happening in, on the day in the present, you know? And I was like, you know, theater's on the street. I'm looking out my window and seeing a real coalition of people across ages, genders, races. And like, I'm just not here to be mad about a thing that shut down. There was no, like, there were no actionables at the time. There's no leverage. I just was like, what? And I felt like people were being asked to sign their names to something they didn't author. And I take that very seriously, you know, as a writer. So I just, I don't know. I just felt like it was, it did feel slightly more of the latter to me. um, What what you're describing this sort of flashy kind of moment of, you know, neck rolling. And I wanted something more. And I talked a lot. I called a lot of my friends who are artists, fellow artists. We all kind of had some similar, not all of us, but some of us had similar concerns. And so we, I just like, you know, I affirm whatever people feel like they need to say, but this is not how I would go about it. Right. I don't necessarily believe in anonymity is the key to things. And in some ways that's like the spirit of all these people, conservative groups, doxing folks. And I don't know. I just felt like womp womp. Um, I just, I guess I just need like a different, you know, I want I want a methodology or, or a strategy that's just different than the same bullying we're seeing across the field. You know, that's what I was craving in my spirit. And the truth is nothing's changed. The same people, <laughs> the same people they were, cre- they were trying to criticize are still in their same places. The boards have not changed. Some of these websites have put up these like solidarity statements, which read really false to me. You know, it just, there was, it was sort of missing it was one of those moments where the theater should be addressing what is happening on the streets. And it wasn't, it was, it was sort of inside baseball. And I think that was a bit of a missed opportunity. And, you know, I'm on several boards. I've been, I've been around conversations that people would not say to people's faces where you're just feeling like that they need, there's still a fight to fight and there needs to be new tactics for the fight. And, you know, this to me, this is something I always think about, which is like, I don't have to make plays. I don't have to do theater. No one has to do anything. So if we start with that reminder, what what are we left with? You know, if we think about that, we're choosing to make theater. What does that change about yeah. how we're feeling? You know, does that make sense? So yeah, it's, it does. Theater, the hashtag being so white. And like, I'm also, I also, again, like I, I was talking a lot about this idea of cohesion. I was asked a couple of years ago to come to the UK and sort of like lead a think tank with um, some black British playwrights. Cause there was this interesting question I kept finding institutions were asking where they were like, well, something's going on in America. And we under, we want to understand what's happening. Why are you all, you know, they were looking at work by like myself or like, you know, Jackie Sibley's Alicia Harris. There was this kind of um, cohort, like a cohort of black American writers who were being, who were like more formally adventurous. And it was just a big old thing. And they were like, talk to us, tell us what's happening. And I was like, what is happening? Like, what is the issue? And I wound up, um, it was really like a revelatory kind of research trip for myself, but I stumbled upon this idea of like coherence, right? That there's this funny thing that happens where it's very easy for the meaning making machine around theater, by which I mean like the institutions themselves and like the press to every generation suddenly be like, oh my God, look at all these black writers, black drama, something's happening, black drama. Like this literally happened, I think in like 2019, like in the spring, there was like 15 different outlets were like, look at all these black playwrights, this is crazy. Like what is happening? And you know- Hello, Harlem Renaissance. <laughs> don't call it, don't call it, yeah, don't call it that. Don't call it a comeback. But you know, there, if you look at like, you know, quite as it's kept, the last like six playwrights for drama have all been black. Something like that. Like, like literally the last six playwright, public Pulitzer's in drama have been black writers, which is kind of, no one's talking about that either, right? And mm. I remember being asked like, to be in one of these, you know, roundups of like, look at all these black people doing stuff. And I was like, you know, the real story here is not like, look what's happening in black drama, but what's happening in American drama is that like black playwrights or players who identify as black are among the very best writers writing in America today. That's actually the story, Yes, you know, but what winds up happening is you create a spectacle of like novelty and newness and almost, and it almost has like a shade of like, what happened when we weren't looking, 
you know, <laughs> I just don't love. And I was like, and I realized that you can kind of go back every generation and that happens. Every 10 years is like this bumper crop and then it fades away. And I was like, why is that happening? And I realized, and it happens in the UK too, very much more explicitly. And it has something to do with a coherence where, because there's no, if you don't revive black plays, it's easy to let them fall into a place of forget being forgotten. And then someone else comes along and they go, you're brand new here. Rather than thinking like, well, maybe we're all operating in a context and like, maybe we're all coming up with other playwrights across racial lines and we're all drinking from the same well, you know? And anyway, I'm, now I'm chilling, I'm teaching a class. I don't mean to be doing that at all, but no, you know, it's lovely. So what we have in the States though, which they don't have in the UK is like Lorraine Hansberry and we have August Wilson. Yes. So we have these pillars of greatness who are like undeniable in the theater history. Right. And so it's hard to see that you're new because any new player who comes out, we're either someone compares us to Susan Laurie, they compare us to August, they compare us to Audrey, and they compare us to Lorraine, even though those people are long dead, you know, <laughs> but we, because we have that, we feel like there's an anchor or tradition to what we're doing, even though that tradition ignores the ways in which it's actually more interracial crossing and cross-population than anything. Like I, I remember when Signature did, guys, just keep talking. I hope somebody edits me down. I really hope somebody edits all this down. But there was this moment, the Signature Theater, like, I think I want to say three or four years ago, revived three one-acts from, like, the off-off-Broadway period. And it was Maria Irene Fernandez, um, Adrienne Kennedy, and um, Edward yes, Albee. Yes, I remember this. Yes, yes. Yeah, and it was, I remember seeing it, I was with my friend Bella Lavelle, who's a TV actress, and we were just hanging out, as you do, as the place cleared out. And these two very dear um, white, or I'll say white-identified um, ushers came up to us and looked, to lo- looked at L- Bella and was like, did you write Funny House of the Negro? <laughs> <laughs> and we no. Were like, uh, we were like, no, but I lived it. <laughs> I, I, I lived it. You're like, yeah, I came back for, I came back, I like, tr- I like did a reverse Benjamin Button. Yeah, exactly. And then, but it was, a moment, and then we had this, I was something like, tell me why you thought that. And they were like, we don't really understand it. We had questions about it. And like, we understood Edward Albee, like Albee's just doing his Albee thing. But those other two plays were very, we didn't understand them. And I was like, this is such an interesting moment because this is about how avant-garde, which are always very, these like mixed spaces, you know, they, it's like the only person whose style is mainstreamed enough. So it's identifiable is Edward Albee. You know, I mean, Marie, so crazy. Marie Irene Fornes. Like, I know. Adrian Kennedy. Uh, I mean, yes. Let's jump in here on this, though, because, yeah, that kind of kind of blows my mind, but it's also, yeah, like, I think we've been there. And the, the question I want to ask about in relation to that is, so we're, you know, we're like somehow back in the culture wars, you know, like, why who knows right but you mentioned earlier about like this kind of right-wing troll culture and everything's kind of being recycled all the whole playbook around kind of attacking you know what um you know black and brown people are trying to do kind of like politically in this country right these demands right but there's also this um i think very i don't know if you see a very kind of tight correlation even amongst sort of like well-meaning you know liberal progressive like the theater audience right between you know, black creatives, black playwrights, black uh, artists more generally, and um, representation, right? <laughs> you know, uh, and it is very, you know, this expectation that something like the avant-garde, even though, and this is what kind of where I was going on that, even though the culture wars, as I remember them back in the 90s, was all about exploding that, right? There was such a vibrant debate on and in, you know, you know, Bell Hooks, Cornel West, like everyone, you know, in um, uh, Coburn and Mercer, you know, like we were having these, uh, Trisha Rose, we were having these like convers- rich, complicated conversations around like difference, right? You know, and uh, I may or may not have been reading Shante Small's forthcoming manuscript, uh, <laughs> Hip Hop Heretics, right? <laughs> Which kind of like takes this sort of like argument that there's this like, aesthetic avant-garde in, in hip-hop going back to like the 70s and this is like a really important and rich part of like multiple aspects of black creativity right which it never is given credit for outside of like black circles right you know or like really really hard for people to see this as um something other than um you know um 
uh, uh, checking identity boxes. And then therefore the kind of backlash becomes, oh, you're just checking identity boxes. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe I'm not even asking a question here, it's asking you to kind of respond to sort of like, how has this sort of impacted, you know, is it, has it kind of always been this way? Is it getting worse? Is it, is it, I um, mean, I think it's, I think it's, um, I think it's always been this way. I think it's becoming more visible and thereby it's becoming worse. I think, um, you know, like I said, like here we are making press releases about like seven plays from even on Broadway. And you're like, since when is a premiere the value marker of a play? Like it's about ticket sales. It's about the awards they win at the back end, you know, but it somehow feels like that gesture is enough to show that the community is a more progressive place. But then of course, when all those plays tank, not because of their lack of talent or integrity, but because audiences aren't ready to come out to the theater yet, yeah. suddenly how does that become a reflection on or become weaponized against future artists of color who will be, you know, I've, I feel like I've been in those situations where producers like, well, that, you know, we tried the black thing. <laughs> you're right. like, we're like, what? You tried the black thing? The black, the black thing. thing, yeah. No, the black thing. You the know, thing that like supports all intellectual and artistic totally. life in the United States and all of the yeah. Americas. You tried, you tried that exactly. And I think too, there's something what you're saying about. I love. I would love to read this undisclosed manuscript, but that, that's what I mean by coherence. Where it's like when people people don't even know the same um, arguments they're having are like 20, 30 years old. They don't know the kind of like how far down the road another scholar or artist got with that exact same thing. And that has to do with me the politics. I mean, this is where we talked about canon, right? And there's in, this, in the theater, there is the politics of the revival, right? That's, that's really yes. what I was talking about. Yes. Like if yes. you're not reviving these works and keeping them and demonstrating that they're part of our heritage, then people forget and they don't care and then we move on and they don't get Definitely recognized. Collins. Oh yeah, to, absolutely. And I think, you know, what's interesting is they're about, I've, I heard whispers that they're about to do um, Audrey and Kennedy on Broadway for the first time ever. And I'll be curious to see what happened. Ooh. You know, they were, they're about to put trouble in mind on Broadway, you know, almost a hundred wow. years at, or not wow. like 60 years after it was denied its first outing, you know, and I'm curious about the difference those things will make, you know, it will, will we actually shift the way that we think about our, our, our canon in some way. And that's really when you start to see it, change in the way that we receive uh, artists of difference, maybe. I don't know. And I really thought about, I don't know why Toni Morrison's death like really hit me in like, in, a, me in, too. A, in, a, in an existential way, because I didn't realize how much I depended on her presence to like leaven, like expansive conversations about representation in the circle and space she occupied. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. And, yeah. No, I agree. And I it don't feels know like an end of an era. Like, yeah. yeah. I don't I know who like that it person really is. She was, you know, that's interesting to talk about Morrison because when you were talking earlier about, uh, I think when we first started, you, I was thinking about how she talks about, um, you were talking about how like black, uh, you were talking about the uh, brother we're out for and, and mm -hmm. I was watching this terrible show, I won't say the name, and I was so struck by how, you know, when she talks about playing in the dark, um, how, you know, black music as this like catharsis for, you know, we know this like black characters, but also black music as this haunting. And in this show, it's a family show about um, a white family and Worcester and, and anyway. So, and it's about a girl who sings and all the music is like 19, 1950s, 1960s black protest music. And I'm like losing my mind, right? Because it's mm -hmm. like, what's going on? And it's like, ain't no mountain. And I'm like, what? Why? Why? When you want to like express emotion and gravitas. Mm -hmm. There's like no mm -hmm. black people. There's like one little mm -hmm. black child in the choir. Gravitas, it's this white girl singing, and you know, in quotes, these black, you know, like, uh, like um, she's singing at last, you know, Etta James. Right. I'm like, girl. She's singing and soul music. About Soul music and yeah. how black, um, how black bodies get displaced. You know, the that kind of artistic um, work gets displaced onto white bodies, and then it becomes legible, visible, promotable. Yeah. You know, capitalized on. And I feel like Toni Morrison was so on our necks as black people to like be ride that line of like being able to cut through the bullshit of white supremacy, but do not let it become your obsession mm -hmm. in terms of it, like limits your imagination of what you mm -hmm. can do as an, a black person on this world and the well of inspiration and creativity you have. And mm -hmm. I, I do feel like she was, 
I met her once when I was an undergrad and she has, I mean, I don't know if y'all have ever met her. I was like, okay, this is, oh yeah. Very presence is like making me tremble, you know? And it's like, she's not a nice person and that's nope. fine. Um, but she is, she was kind and that she was generous, you know, she was so generous. And I do feel like her death really made me, I mean, I always cite her as the person my mom gave me when I was 11 years old, uh, tar baby. I don't know why she gave me that book. I was like, it's not appropriate for an 11 year old child, but, <laughs> but, um, but Toni Morrison has been in my life for so long and she's really, she really sparked my love of, of not just reading, but also the, you know, African diasporic literature, the importance mm-hmm. of, our, of our literature. Anyway, yeah. so like, yeah, I feel like she was that person. She was like, you know, it's like James Baldwin, her, you know, I'll do, I feel like, you know, I don't know who that is now. Um, there are some people, I feel like Sadia Hartman is someone who is um, beginning to cross over right. and right. her work is influenced. And, and, and frankly, a lot of the Afro-pessimists and a lot of the critical negative, black critical negativity people, their work, although they don't, speak the same way as Morrison. Mm-hmm. I think it's helping people to think more expansively yeah. about their experience and, and w- what they want to kind of put into the world. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think there's something about how, you know, this uh, quote she always gives, where it's just like she wrote Blue Side because she wanted to read that book and it's out there. And that's that to me is like the critical difference missing from a lot of the discourse now, which is I'm feeling, I felt like during COVID in theater, especially there was a lot of like burn it down, tear it down theaters, the white supremacists, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I'm going to call bullshit on this because how did you all get here if you all didn't come here because you once saw a play or were in a play that touched you, you know? Right. And, people yes. start, and when people kind of talk un- unreflectively about the theater as a as a white space or a theater audience is white, I'm like, were you never in the audience? Like you were in that theater. Was that a white space when you were in that theater? Were you a visitor? And I feel like for me, Morrison was always about claiming the space of, of reception. You know, she was always about mm. saying like, no, 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 no. Right. Nobody gets to do not seed, do not seed the pleasures right. of reading, the joys of reading, the advocation yes. of reading to a white space or to white people. You are there. You show up. That's the radical potential of the work itself is that it can re- it reaches whoever picks up the book, you know, yes. and that and that's what I feel missing from a lot of this. Like, so that's why the we see white American theater thing where I'm like, but y'all are the white American theater. Y'all go to the theater. Y'all been going to these galas. So y'all were in these audiences. Y'all were getting these comp tickets. I'm like, why are you suddenly pretending you're outside the club? You were in the club. That's why you're writing this letter. And I feel like that's what I'm missing. That's what I feel like I'm missing yeah. from a lot of the discourse. And maybe that's just going to take them into come, you know, it's a moment of deep wounding, et cetera, et cetera. But that's what Morrison brought me. She brought me the spirit of, uh, it's yours. The library is yours, <laughs> you know? And it's, and and it's minute, open and you're reading. And it's open, I'm reading. And you can sit with me or you can go outside and wait for me to be done reading. Let me ruin this metaphor even more. But <laughs> anyway, that's that's why Miss Morrison. I I I it's uh, I mean how much I think about it to this day. It's crazy. So it's yeah, I know. And I get really I scared that she that almost will be forced out of it out of um forced out of sight. You know. Oh, I hope not. Yeah, that's my fear. But. Okay, so join us next time for the completion of this conversation with Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. See you next time.